0: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day.
1: Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Alina, who's
0: with us today? We've got a returning guest with us today. We've got Louise Creechan, who has made it on the internet, ladies and gentlemen. She has, she has. made it on the internet.
1: Tell us I how have. you've made it, Louise, since you were last I mean, time.
2: it's all down to you guys, so thank you so much. This is my sort of, my Oscar acceptance speech right now. <laughs> um, thank you so much for having me on for the Charles Dickens Christmas episode. Because well, we are
1: fulfilling our
2: trash quota. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because some, <laughs> someone, somewhere
1: called me trash someone from, from who a, protects all of their social media so no one can see it is quite happy to dish it out abuse to yeah. other people is what we're saying
2: someone whose twitter buyer reads not woke told me off for referring to charles dickens as an entitled straight white man. Apparently that makes me trash.
1: He said it was out of context as well, but I'm sorry, we were discussing the fact that he built a wall down the middle of the bedroom so that his wife couldn't see him. If that's not the most entitled male thing I've ever heard in my life. How's that that out of context? I mean, maybe he
2: thinks that's okay. I mean, maybe he thinks, you know what? Dickens was on to something. I mean, the other thing we were talking about as well was that um, Dickens put, tried to put his wife in asylum yeah, hundreds of her. times to get rid of her. So again, if that's not something that I should comment with, that's entitlement. And I, I don't quite know what is. Um, it's hard. I
1: mean, like, I'm possibly the most unwoke person alive. And even though I was basically, oh, and he didn't like your language either. I was basically fucking outraged at the idea of Charles <laughs> Dickens and how he treated his wife as well. So... I don't. I, I, I also enjoy it when
2: you're like oh he didn't like your language and then the next thing that came out of your mouth was fucking
0: so yeah that's fine you know it, what uh, makes you think? how does he treat his own wife
2: it's a it's a thinker I mean yeah you know mrs anonymous commenter on the internet are you okay can you blink twice if you're um, yeah with you <laughs>
0: <help? laughs> your hand if you need help
2: Show us <laughs> on the we're, phone we're he here he for you,
1: you. <laughs> We're here for you. <laughs> anyway, he's had enough airtime. Fuck him. Yes. Yes. You are here because you are awesome and because you have got an awesome speciality. And you came on and did Dickens for us at Christmas, which was great because we wanted a sort of Christmassy themed one. But we invited you back to talk about what really turned you on, basically. And what turns you on is like learning difficulties in the Victorian period, isn't it? and Dealing with illiteracy and things like that.
2: Yeah, I mean, that, that is my research interest. I'm not sure I would refer to it as uh, it turning me on because it's starting to get a little bit... I mean,
1: yeah. what, Would
2: that be trashy? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you are talking to trash, so I should probably know what trash is, but yeah. I don't think I do. Um, but yeah, no, my, my actual... I mean, as I say in Dickens' episodes, I work on Dickens' quite a lot, but my actual speciality is illiteracy and learning difficulty in the 19th century. So... Um, that might seem a little bit odd because we think of learning disability um, particularly when thinking about conditions like dyslexia dyspraxia ADHD these sorts of things as being quite 21st century well 20th century but you know mainly 21st century um, conditions but they have a legacy in the 19th century and that's really what interested me initially about project that I did so uh, my thesis uh, was on I called it unwriting uh, Victorian illiteracy uh, because I I was trying to sort of break through the idea that illiteracy is just sort of a a blank space or just something that was about not having access to education because actually there were a lot more complicated discourses going on um, and People, authors like Dickens, like Gaskell and Hardy, maybe suggesting, although ironically because it was in their novels, and obviously you need to be literate to read their novels, but suggesting that the contemporary push towards mass literacy might not have necessarily been a good thing. Um, It might have been a site of exploitation. Um, It might have been a site of uh, a means of controlling um, the the working classes and. Yeah so I'm I'm trying to break down this assumption that becoming literate was always seen as being a good thing as something that can help your social class because that was definitely discourses that were happening in the 19th century but we kind of forget about them because we think you know universal literacy equals progress but
1: does it does it though um you said that like 21st century we assume that like we've kind of invented the terms for it and everything so what if i chuck you've given us like a victorian phrase, haven't you that blows that away so what is word blindness
2: word blindness is kind of our first thing that is similar to what we might call dyslexia so we have to be careful uh, when we're thinking about retrospective diagnosis because We cannot use our same diagnostic um, categorization that we would today because we can't examine the patients. So whenever you're working with historical medical conditions, it's always inferred. You can never say X definitely had this. Similarly with conditions like word blindness, same as when we think about hysteria and other um, conditions where we understand how the 19th century understood these conditions but we can't necessarily put our label onto them. So word blindness um, was a phenomenon that came that sort of gathered interest near the end of the 19th century. So it sort of it was first identified in officially in medical writings um in sort of the 1880s in germany um someone called adolf kusmal which i mean i'm i did a level german but i'm kind of butchering the accent as well um i don't remember a word to be honest and i don't know um you have a kind of anum that's 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 it um but yeah uh So that was the sort of thing. So they identified something that they kind of called dyslexia um, or dyslexia in German. But it was the cases that people were originally looking at were cases of people who had been literate and often extremely educated who had a stroke and were actually suffering from aphasia, which is a neurological change that can affect the ability to read, write, speak these sorts of things. They'd have these changes after a stroke. So it was quite confusing initially the diagnosis of dyslexia because it came out the same period where medical practitioners were thinking about aphasia and strokes. So they got a little bit confused. Um, They kind of thought that for word blindness, so any condition where people were struggling to read that a neurological change in the brain had to have happened. There had to have been some sort of event to prompt this. However, um, This was completely sort of blown out of the water when British physicians, starting with someone called Dr. Pringle Morgan, which I just think is the best (laughs) name. (laughs) Um, Right. Then they started looking at children who obviously they hadn't gone through anything. They were too young, they thought. Um, So they sort of came to the conclusion that actually their difficulties with learning to read and write must be congenital. Um, so it was something that they were born with so this um, happened in 1896 and um, so then they came up with the term congenital word blindness which is probably the closest to what we would consider dyslexia Um, and uh, so Pringle, um, Dr Pringle Morgan was um, the guy that published from it first but the guy that's the most prolific publisher on this was someone called Dr. James Hinchelwood, who worked at the Glasgow uh, Western Infirmary um, and also at the Glasgow Eye Hospital because a lot of people thought that it must be something to do with something going wrong with the eyes, because why can't you put your letters together? Maybe it's something to do with your eyes as opposed to something going on in the brain. Um, So he was sort of really prolific and and wrote a lot of studies. Um, And the big thing about these studies... That is always commented on is the fact that with a lot of these children that they were obviously very bright and that their teachers would say things like you know if everything was done by oral instruction actually this child would be the brightest in the class but they just cannot learn the letters they can't remember it they can't put them together um, so that the thing that's so distinct about it is the fact that there seems to be such a dispre- discrepancy sorry between um, you know the level of intelligence when you 're talking to a child or when they 're doing other activities and the level of intelligence when they have to put things in writing or they, when they 're trying to read um, so that 's how they kind of noted that it was it, they didn 't just assume stupidity they didn 't just well they did assume stupidity Sorry, they didn 't just assume severe intellectual disability because obviously the child was in front of them and they were like well uh that's not right this is when they're first getting diagnosed in the 1890s though um so decades previously the earlswood asylum for idiots which was sort of the royal asylum for idiots which i think well, was well, it, well, I- style. oh i know uh, it's just Imagine awful doing that now Oh, I know. And I actually think from what I can remember, and I may be wrong, so, you know, I hold my hands up if I am wrong. I think Earlswood was where uh, the Bowes-Lyons sisters, you, you know, the the um, the nieces, cousins, cousins, cousins of the Queen, yeah. where they were housed and, um, and kind of put away, that came out relatively recently. But I think it was the same institution. But obviously, I'm talking about when it first uh, came into being in the 1870s, like I, the Queen isn't that old. Uh, for our cousins yeah. to be in the <laughs> 1870s. But um, yeah, the Earlswood Asylum for Idiots, um, which was first sort of um, functioning sort of 1850s, 60s. Um, during the 1860s and the, uh, to the 1880s, they had this massive influx of admissions of children into this idiot asylum. Obviously, when I'm saying idiot, I'm, I'm sort of using the 19th century. Yeah. cadences. like, I am not calling intellectually disabled people idiots because this is... <clears>
1: Yeah, we just using it for the context, this is the period we're talking about. Yeah, this this would be the catch-all
2: title that 19th century people were using. Um, but there was a massive influx of uh, children getting admitted into the asylum. And the reasons given, so that they, in order to be admitted, they had to have a report from, usually from a family member. Um, and these reports are just full of of mothers or, you know, other family members saying that um, they're admitting them because they'd gone to school and they couldn't learn. They mm. couldn't learn to read. They, they just couldn't learn their letters. So we've got this sort of history where if we're thinking about the 1860s, 1880s, the Education Act um, that sort of mandated for, uh, you know, universal education, elementary education, uh, was 1870, but things were moving before then. So, really, sort of, most, most people um, were going to school before then. The 1870 Act just kind of mopped up um, a lot of the other areas, but mo- most children were getting some sort of level of education uh, prior to the 1870 Act. But um, basically, so if you're thinking 1860s, the thing that had changed that led to all these uh, children getting basically put in silence because they couldn't learn to read is because generations before they would have just been sent to the fields. Like they would never have had to become literate in the first place. So we, to it. Yeah, exactly. So suddenly we've got this material change because education and universal literacy was being pressured that because of that change in educational provision, Sways the population, but suddenly found themselves essentially disabled because they struggled to learn to read. Um, so, I think the history is really interesting there, um, although it didn't obviously have a formal name, and a lot of this is inferred uh, that it was a learning difficulty like dyslexia. Um, it's just interesting, and my work really deals with that idea of um, well, you know, why why literacy? Because essentially a skill obviously it's a very useful skill I'm not I'm not doubting that but what did that material change do that by the end of the 19th century something that was quite normal suddenly warranted going to the doctor and marking you out as abnormal or even even disabled Um, so that's kind of that's where where I sort of sit in terms of my research Um, yeah sorry that that was very
0: long (laughs) that's brilliant so, Louise, you and I would have pretty much ended up in there, right? Oh, totally, yeah. I, I
2: can't read. Um, no, I, I, I can read. Because I'm, I'm dyslexic, um, dyspraxic, and I'm really, really trying for an ADHD diagnosis um, and a whole host of other interesting uh, sort of mental health uh, diagnoses as well. So, you know, just diversion all the way. And I think you were chatting with me, while well, ago Alina you're dyslexic and dyspraxic as well
0: yeah dyslexic dyspraxic dyscalculia and um, your interesting suggestion to try the ADHD uh, test has sparked something for me so I might be going down that route too because um, it would explain some some of the things that I just can't explain about myself
2: yeah, that there's um, obviously this isn't Victorian, but there's a hu- there are huge, huge numbers of women who are um, getting diagnosed with ADHD sort of in their thirties, late like twenties, because because ADHD in women um, it, it manifests differently um, to to boys, and obviously, um, I mean, I, I'm sort of talking in quite gender essentialist terms. I don't I don't mean that. I mean uh, just the way that um, things sort of happen in primary school classrooms. Like very often if you've got a, a, a male child or a sign male birth child with ADHD um, in a classroom, they'll be very hyperactive. They'll be the ones, you know, throwing chairs, screaming, that sort of thing. And so it's easier to say there's an issue there. Whereas women uh, or people who sign female at birth are much easier, much more adept at masking Any symptoms so that they're less overt and it might manifest in terms of concentration difficulties more than the hyperactivity um so there's a lot of women and particularly women that have been diagnosed with things like depression uh in the past that they actually are finding that you know what what is actually underdiagnosed ADHD um we just didn't have the vocab for it and um, there was actually a lot of people that didn't think that women could get ADHD and similarly with autism, autism uh, diagnoses among women again because it's less overt, um, people didn't think that women were, could be autistic uh, for a long time um, so like I mean when we were at primary school like, in like the 90s Alina you know, that would have been like right in the middle of that well you know they're not running around screaming therefore there can't be an issue. Okay. Um. So it's it's, but it's really interesting. Like people are trying to sort of correct that. Uh, but yeah, it's. uh Yes, yeah, it's. it's, it's uh, I mean, the so ADHD. Um, obviously didn't have. Well, not obviously because. Um, it's not obvious. I I really try and not say that, but I find that a tick. Like when it's your own yeah. research um and I really hate saying that because I'm cause it's not obvious it's obvious to me because I spent fucking years researching it sorry I'm not, I'm not supposed to be swearing on this podcast because I got told about off about that too <laughs> um, but um that wasn't a Victorian thing that came a lot later um but um I think some of these neurodivergent conditions I think we, we were chatting about this before I came on, um, Alina, like things like um, dyspraxia, they have these, uh, so dyslexia was word blindness and that was a 19th century thing. Much, much later, like right into the 20th century when dyspraxia um, sort of being manifested. So dyspraxia, uh, which a lot of people don't necessarily know what it is, is the sort of coordination version of uh, dyslexia. It also affects concentration, but it's mainly about coordination. But that was called clumsy child syndrome when it was first diagnosed. To be really
0: fair, I, I, we are clumsy. Dyspraxic people are incredibly clumsy, so they're not kind of wrong. I mean, yeah. Oh Let's yeah. Talk
1: like about cures. Um, Victorians, how did they go? Did they have cures in inverted commas for dyslexia?
2: Nah. No, no. They just no. It was
1: Just like it is pretty cool. much
2: like oh, that's interesting. What a shame um That's and then smart. they would just kind of work try and work through the letters a bit more um so there's not too much um out there on trying to sort of combat it uh, because the reports that we have are kind of from case studies so it's like oh i found this really this bizarre case of word blindness and very often that would be the title like an unusual case of word blindness letter blindness without word blindness which i don't quite understand the difference um and the, these sort of variations of a, on a theme, so it's this kind of like, oh, look at something interesting that I found, as opposed to, well, you know what, these are human beings. Let's maybe help them overcome their difficulties. Oh no, we don't do that because uh, that would be, you know, too helpful. Um, so the uh, so basically, you you were just kind of forced to do more and more exercises, like in the classrooms, if uh, your teacher would bother to teach you. That persisted well into the 20th century. I mean, even like when I was at primary school, like I spent a lot of time photocopying because I wasn't allowed to do the hard work um, because I was on the dyslexic table at primary school, um, which I don't have a chip on my shoulder about whatsoever. You would just never get
1: away with it now, would you?
2: Oh, no, not at all. Um, I remember, this is the with deep childhood trauma. So I hope that after, you know, talking about my childhood trauma, I don't get called trash again because I don't yeah. think I can take it. But um, I I joke about this in my stand-up, but like at primary school, I remember there was um, it was a table and the, the tables in the classroom were all like given names, like, um, but, and it was, but it was obviously done by ability. Although, you know, the teacher sort of wouldn't say that. And I was about six at this time. And um there were like there were the rabbits and there were like the cheetahs and all this stuff, obviously the smart kids. Um I was on the clouds, as in Head in the Clouds, which uh, all the other dyslexic kids were on and it was um it was oh really subtle. God, you would never get away with that now. That's like abuse now. <laughs> yeah. Um and I think about it, I'm just like, huh. <laughs> that was that wasn't very good, was it? Um, so how but,
0: do, um...
1: How is dyslexia portrayed in Victorian literature then, because this is what you do isn't it? You use literature as a sort of study mechanism for researching this stuff yeah so um, my I
2: kind of go backwards because um, I'm looking at nineteenth century literature um, we don't have the same um, a diagnostic categories. because that doesn't come in as I said until like the 1890s and even then it was odd however. Um, so I decided to look at illiteracy and the kind of politics of being illiterate or or having low-level literacy in novels and where that can be used as a means of resistance as opposed to the sort of model of deficit. So this is kind of Victorian hangover that if you can't read or if you have... Issues with reading and writing that something's wrong with you, that, that's a deficit, that's a problem. Whereas there are numerous examples in Victorian literature where actually um, low level literacy is a means of agency. So, in examples that I look at, and uh, you know, the fact that, they, that the authors are, are using this as a means of agency kind of suggests that there was an alternative kind of pushback against all these. Um, uh, the the supposed amelioration on the improvement discourses about everyone becoming literate. So like in Hardy, there's loads of examples in pretty much every novel of a very traditionally educated character being pitted against um, someone that's from sort of a rural background that didn't have access to education. And it's always the character without the formal education that kind of trumps the educated character and shows them up. Um, and, this, and it's often done through things like um, spelling mistakes. So um, I've got an article which I really, really um, need to send off. Um, but there's the a chapter in my, my book that will hopefully be done soon maybe um where i look at spelling mistakes in hardy and where they use these kind of like locations of resistance so like a small example is um in far from the madden and far from the madden crowd which i can't see um one of hardy's early novels um there is this tiny tiny detail i love finding like a tiny detail. It's maybe in like two sentences of a novel and then writing about i don't know a hundred times that on analyzing uh, those two sentences, um, where there's a there's a sort of rustic, um, these rustic characters always in the background of, of Hardy. This kind of the use kind of scene setting, but actually there's more to it than that, I think. Um, and this rustic is called Henry, but he absolutely insists that you spell his name Henry with an extra e in it. Yeah. Um, and there's this comment about how he would go, how he would sort of tell schoolmasters that they were absolutely wrong, they tried to define him by spelling his name Henry. And the thing about that spelling error is that it comes into, it's no longer about it being right or wrong, but it's about identity politics. It's about having that strength to take ownership over spelling mistakes and different discourses. And um, essentially... Assert your own identity against that that's being pushed onto you by the sort of in, by institutions by the state um, and these sorts of imperatives that are pushing towards mass literacy. Um, in other things that I look at, there there are examples um, in Dickens where the literature where the reading lesson is used as, as a site of exploitation. So very often sexual exploitation. There are so many examples in. Victorian novels where these scenes of learning to read where sort of upper class guy will take pity on a poor illiterate working class girl and decide that he's going to teach her to read and then by the end of the novel they end up married so obviously but very often in their marriage something else happens like in our mutual friend Lizzie Hexam ends up married to Eugene Rayburn uh, but then he uh, gets attacked by another suitor of hers and ends up apparently disabled. So, and she's then further excluded from society. So it's not like she's become literate in order to um, sort of fit in with her new husband's society. She's become literate, and then she has no use for that literacy. So that literacy was just used as a means of getting her to marry him. And there's a lot of this kind of. These, these control elements um, in literacy lessons um, sort of as they're portrayed in literature there's a lot of abuse that happens in the reading lesson um, as sort of a space of control so when I say I look at dyslexia I use that as a jumping off point for sort of the politics of becoming literate the politics of what it means to be uh, portrayed as an illiterate character in a novel that, you know, a novel is a literate form, right? So there's a weird implicit politics there of how are you novelist using your literacy to portray illiteracy and what, what are the social dynamics of that? Um, So I mean, I say this, and there are people that have tried to diagnose characters, particularly in Dickens, with various learning difficulties. Um, so there is an example from um, Bleak House, which, in which um, a character called Crook, he's sort of, he is a character that famously spontaneously combusts uh, in the novel, um, which is just hilarious that someone spontaneously combusts in Dickens. But um, So basically, because there's so much gin in his system, um it means that it just randomly bursts into flames. Um probably
1: good if there's any more lockdowns.
2: Yeah, pretty much. I think it's a real risk um when they're when they're deciding on what to do um with lockdown, with people just kind of drinking themselves through the pandemic. I think that there should be sort of PSAs on the uh the sort of PMQ questions and all that, and saying, you know. Be careful, guys, because you might spontaneously combust if you have too much gin. Uh, just look at this guy in
0: Dickens. Um, but that's yeah. The- Alex, by the way, just so you know, she might spontaneously combust all the gin she drinks.
1: I've decided that that's okay. I've decided that if in this entire fucking mess, the only thing that happens is my liver takes a beating, um, I can live with that.
2: I mean, you could live with that until you burst into flames.
1: Yeah. Uh. At which point, it doesn't look like I'm going to get let out my house ever again anyways, so oh, meh. Yeah, I
2: mean, at least it's it would be quite like quite a banterous way to go. Like, you know, I well, want to be remembered for something. Floor, Everyone would stop and read your headstone as well in the cemetery. Exactly, it'd be like, "Here lies trash." She burst into flames. Um.
0: <laughs> Louise, I, I, I'm I'm going to interrupt you because I I want to know about autism in yes. in the Victorian period. I mean, did that exist? I mean, it obviously it existed, but how did it look like?
2: Well. So autism is a little bit again like sort of dyslexia. Um, it's hard to diagnose without the, um, without, the sort of same, uh, sorry, blood, without the same sorry just brain blank without the same diagnostic criteria. And with something like dyslexia, which is why dyslexia was diagnosed like pre you've got like it's the inability to learn to read or write that you can see in that period. Whereas autism because it's kind of a social disability, largely, those markers might, you might think that the sort of manifestation of things like meltdown, like sensory processing, like over processing, uh, like difficulty, um, social relationships, that is far easier explained to the 19th century mind by something like just presuming madness or presuming like something is wrong, but something nondescript is wrong with that. I mean, presuming child, but obviously uh, people don't grow out of autism. So um, autism generally manifests if you see it in literature or if you see it in medical diagnoses as um, just a sort of a weirdness um, being off kilter. Um, But it's, it's, it's a difficult question because ultimately we can't look at um, you know we, we, we can't look objectively with the same criteria and diagnose but I mean I, I can tell you about autism is that because there are those connections with madness when it was beginning to get diagnosed in the sort of uh, I don't know sort of early, mid, uh, you know, sort of like 20th, 30s, uh decades of the 20th century, they initially called it childhood schizophrenia. So there was that real link to mental illness, um, which obviously it is is not. Um, so it's, um, I think it's interesting because we consider these conditions as being uh, neurodivergent. Um, so neurodivergence, neurodiversity, um, Our sort of neurodiversity is the movement to um, include all sort of neurological types um, within society and make sure that um, any outputs are, you know, are easily accessible, not just for people that we call neurotypical, so those without conditions such as um, neurologically different conditions such as autism, dyslexia, dyspraxia, ADHD, even a traumatic brain injury that causes some sort of difficulty or mental health issues. So the neurodiversity is the the societal attempt to include all of that. Um, When we look at neurodivergent conditions, it's a a connection that we make um, in 21st century society saying there's something going on neurologically that affects processing and changes the way that you experience and view the world. Whereas, so in that sense, we group things like autism and dyslexia together under that movement. Whereas, in the 19th century or, you know, in, 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 early diagnose, in early diagnoses, like through the 20th century, the difference between, you know, word blindness, which is very much looking at the symptom and then autism, which is childhood schizophrenia, that mental health context really comes into it with autism, whereas it doesn't in um, dyslexia. So I think it's, I think it's quite interesting to just look at the way that our, Definitions change depending on how much we know about neurological difference and about um, how these things manifest. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
0: Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt.
2: Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare.
1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's weird. It's like there's that column that comes in on the census returns, isn't there, for lunatic. So mm-hmm. on the end of the thing, it's like there's a num- numbers one to four, and you have to tick the box if you have someone who is blind, deaf, dumb, or insane. And it's all lumped together at the end of the census return. You declare if anyone in the house is any of the above, and that's about as much as they diagnose it. Yeah,
2: like lunacy has a much longer history than even the 19th century. Lunacy is a term that I think is probably early modern as well. They were using it, but I'm not an early modernist, so I can't. Yeah, don't necessarily know, but I know that um, sort of asylums for lunatics certainly started in the 18th century, as opposed to the 19th um so there's a lot much longer legacy um looking at um that notion of madness but of course we we don't know but presumably a lot of these discourses on madness were were actually um people that we might diagnose with like a neurodivergent condition now hmm. um so. so
1: let's let's do a different word then that is from mm-hmm. your period which is idiocy oh, it's so yes. harsh, isn't it mm-hmm. let's talk about like baby idiots. How are babies with severe disabilities viewed at the time? I mean, generally speaking, because you can't
2: comment on, you know, every household, mm. um, there was a turn that happened um alongside um the sort of poor laws and the poor acts. So when the when it became the responsibility of the parish um, to sort of put people into workhouses as opposed to taking care for people within their communities. Um, so that there was, a, there was a shift in funding that happened with the new poor law that basically started the workhouses. Hmm. So prior to the workhouses and the new poor law, the general thing that happened, unless they were disruptive or had any um, additional issues or, you know, family circumstances, if someone was um, deemed an idiot, while... Um, Before, prior to sort of that funding shift, that they would very often be just cared for in the family home. They were part of society. They were seen as just kind of children um, that they were harmless, if that was the way that their disability manifested. And they they were more commonly cared for in the home. However, with the change in the Poor Laws and with the change, and that was when asylums were really coming into their own as well. So. Just in terms, but obviously, if if you had to keep a person who wasn't necessarily working or that because they couldn't, that's a huge cost on the family. So that's when they started getting dumped into workhouses and dumped into asylums for, especially asylums for idiots. So I mean, shame came into it for some of the sort of more wealthier families. But to be honest, like prior to those sort of changes in like the eighteen thirties they were a part of society and they weren't necessarily shunned particularly among the sort of working classes that was fine uh you would just it it would it wouldn't be as shameful however you've always since the sort of 18th century and the sort of lunacy you've always got that aspect of you could always just dump them in an asylum but it was it wasn't as it wasn't as prevalent until the sort of later nineteenth century to just kind of lock someone away, um, and that tended to be a financial thing. Um, so if you couldn't afford to keep them, um, if you were poor, then that would be a way of sort of getting rid of them, putting them to workhouses. And then you've got your more kind of upper class families where it becomes a sense of shame. Um, but it's interesting how shame is kind of class based around match the disability idiocy is a, is a very broad brush term it's uh it's not it doesn't break it down into any more um any, any categories that that could extend to something like down syndrome or it could also sense something that's catatonic that they you know, wouldn't necessarily move or be you know kind of in ketosis for most of the time like there, there isn't any grey area uh, with the DFC, is just sort of one big category. I mean, one of the things that uh, might be interesting to talk about just really briefly is about the origins of Down syndrome. I'm not sure if you know no. about Okay, so Down syndrome, the term comes from John Langdon Down, who, um, he has an awful, awful article. This is kind of getting towards starting to think about eugenics, so it's not pleasant. Um, but he has an awful article it's very famous about the ethnic classification of idiots. So what he does is he basically looks at all his idiots in his asylum. Um, again, 19th century term, his term, not mine. And he decides that amongst different types of idiots, you could classify them. And you could classify them according to how much they look or resemble like certain ethnicities. So... The term for someone with Down syndrome initially was mongoloid,
1: and the reason, point,
2: yeah. yeah, and the reason for that is because he determined that people in his asylum with Down syndrome looked like they were Mongolian, so they looked like they had um, sort of um, large faces, or, or you know, the, he thought that that's they resembled that racially, and then um, there was another um, case of and some sort of encephalitis, um, I can't remember, which is really, really bad, but where um, essentially, um, if you've seen the pictures of like, quote unquote, pinheads from, um, in, from um, sort of freak shows and that, mm. where they'd have a small skull, that, they thought that that was um, very African because they were trying, they, they seemed almost like they were gonna um, revert back to being like monkeys. And because monkeys are African. Um, so it's it's a really awful practice, obviously, but um that's sort of what we're dealing with when we're starting to think about disability and quantification in the 19th century. And you know, this this led to some very awful things later on with sort of Francis Galton and the birth of eugenics, uh, which feeds into things like, I mean. Alina will know a lot more about this than me, but sort of Nazi ideologies and stuff about disability, sterilisation discourses um, and stuff. So, I mean, it's it's pretty awful when you start really delving into the histories of these things. Stuttering and lisping, would that be classified as a disability? Yes and no. Um, so, the um, I've been looking at, well, quite a long time ago now, but I'm going to return to it, um, so stuttering is interesting because it's a condition that you know that the the 2010 equality act defines a disability as being anything that um interferes with your day-to-day life so if stuttering manifests in speech then it does qualify as a disability because it affects your ability to speak which we consider to be part of everyday life In the victorian period Um, people were less kind about stuttering it was often seen as a failure particularly of manliness because if uh, you're trying if you're struggling to get your words out there's something about like not being overly virile like something about sort of there's a lot of discourses that cross over with sort of premature ejaculation and stuttering and so there's stuff like that 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 they were that they were thinking about um,
1: which is really not PC but that notion. also like this notion that at the time that oratory and the ability to speak in public is seen as like the mark of a great intellectual and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I've done loads of research on this for um, Arthur East David, who was a pilot in the First World War and who had a stutter at Eton, mm. whilst being the smartest boy in the school. So it was like how do you quantify this poor kid that just can't speak when he gets nervous Mm um with uh, they treat it like they basically i've got all the letters from the doctors and all of the treatment plans and everything and and what it was was recitation that they Mm -hmm. tried to teach him by training him to speak Mm -hmm. better like it was something that could be over overcome if he practiced talking enough yeah and
2: the treatment would be to regard people as stupid, so there's a, there's a there's a sort of semi fictional story by james Malcolm Reimer uh called the unspeakable about basically it's a biography about someone with a stutter, and at school they get um torn into and uh treated awfully because they really really struggle um but he overcomes the stutter by working with someone but something that was really awful was that um to treat stutters initially. It wasn't talking therapy, which you, you know, early uh, 20th century that you're you talking about. But it was um, people, doctors in the 1840s and 50s used to think, oh, well, you're struggling to speak. So, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to remove your uvula, which is a dangly bit at the back of your throat and just part of your soft palate surgically. And, you know, that'll fix you. Which obviously okay. it did not. That is, that is a correct use of the word, obviously. Because you just lop out bits of people's mouths. It's not going to help them speak. Um, Isn't there shock
1: therapy as well? You know, when electricity comes in and the, this is a correct use of the word idiots, the idiots think that um, just shocking everybody is a, a catch-all for everything as well.
2: Yeah, or just shove an ice pick in their eyes. It's fine. fine. Mm. Um, yeah, that, that was a lot later. But it's that thing where you're like, Oh, this is this is really awful because I I actually this is totally not my research area, but I read something recently about uh, frontal lobotomies and the 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 transorbital lobotomy. So that so putting the ice pick through the eye was really heralded as being genius because because it was going through the eye, what they would do is they would use electroshock therapy in order to, so that they, they didn't need anesthetic because they'd have been they passed out from the electroshock therapy and they didn't need a surgeon to administer it because they weren't cutting into anything. So really it's a time saver because you, you didn't need you didn't need all the stuff, you didn't need anesthetist, you didn't need a surgeon. you could just do this in your mental institution um because you could like just with a little bit of training uh so it was re- it was kind of first um really almost marketed as revolutionary because you didn't need expertise to shove something in someone's eye um whereas you know you would need um if you if you did want to do perform brain surgery obviously you need surgeons anesthetists etc but um there's just that proposition of oh it's great it's a time saver you know it's not as messy um it's it's just when you think about it now you're just like
1: oh god oh, it's going through their minds
2: yeah but it's, the, it's 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 just the absolute pride of wow this is so innovative this is changing so much it's so amazing you're just like
1: wow but i mean it's this- like that true victorian backslapping, isn't it
2: oh yeah I mean this is this is later this is 20th century um when they were doing the the transorbital apex and all that but like it's just that thing it's like but then I can't help think I almost did like a sex in the city but I can't help but wonder but um I can't help but think maybe there's medical things that we do all the time now that in 50 years time people are going to be like what the fuck um uh, like even stupid things, like obviously, we, we we discovered recently that um we didn't need to be taking a week's break when we were, if you're on the pill, in order to have a withdrawal bleed. That was something that the company kind of marketed to the Catholic Church because they thought if you're interfering with a woman's um menstrual cycle, that you know they need to bleed at some point in the month. but actually, All these women that have been having unnecessary periods because they were on the pill, they could have just been taking the pill all through the month. There was no evidence. They just told, they just wanted to sell it as more natural to the Catholic Church in the 1960s, which is just awful when you think about like some women that have terrible times with their menstrual cycles and they could have just not been having them. Not have had to have them at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Same with, um, I mean, we've been talking about uh, period poverty quite a lot in Scotland. Um, We've now got um, dentistry products available for free by law um, in public places. But, you know, the amount of women that were having periods that didn't need to, um, the amount of potential um, accidental pregnancies or abortions that could have been avoided if women were just taking the pill, all the time instead of having that week and then messing up their medication but it's, you know that that's, that's a small and less terrifying example than um lobotomies for example but I'm sure there's probably things that we're doing um medically speaking that in 50 years time people are gonna be absolutely horrified by um I try not to think about that too much when I go to the doctors um because I'm a massive hypochondriac anyway so the thought that you know I could not only be ill but there's something that I was treating that illness with was going to make me worse then uh I just freak out but um but of course, we're in COVID times and I am sure that this is not going to be a problem with the vaccine. The vaccine is good. Make sure you have the vaccine. I, know, um, I
1: was sitting there last night thinking, what if it turns out that it's made like everyone infertile? Ugh, I mean, save the planet. yeah, um. <laughs> And kill the human race. Anyway, I know um, we can't. Like, I have to be really careful with this as well, because I'm writing about a member of the royal family who I know had an eating disorder. Uh, No, it's not Princess Diana. Everybody knows she's had an eating disorder. Um, But like you say, it's diagnosing people who aren't around to be diagnosed. And also when you're not a medical professional as well, it's not advisable. But can we look at some historical figures and say, we're pretty sure that if he'd have been diagnosed today, that that's a likely diagnosis?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's difficult because I think sometimes particularly with things like dyslexia um that you have to kind of ask the question who is this diagnosis for it's not mm-hmm. for the person that's dead um yeah. it's you know it is for people that um, maybe have learning difficulties now and want something to look up to which seems like a great thing off the bat but i find it quite problematic because I mean, problematic is the classic academic word, isn't it? Um, for when you can't be bothered to engage with it, but you know it's wrong. Um, so <laughs> I, I find it quite problematic because the thing is is that if um, we remember disabled people who have managed to do what we consider to be amazing things, and we use this whole discourse of in spite of their disability, it's something in disability studies that we call the super crypt. So the super disabled person, the, the, the absolute superhuman, you know, thinking about people like Stephen Hawking, people like Helen Keller, which actually is really interesting because there's this huge controversy on TikTok at the moment, where like Gen Z don't believe Helen Keller was a thing. They, they think she was faking it. There's this whole TikTok trend with millions of Gen Zers being like, nah, didn't happen, fake news about Helen Keller, which is just absolutely obscene to me um but it's worth looking into because it is a rabbit hole um because they just don't believe that someone who is deaf and blind could write read and write and be a, a massive socialist that was that was watched um by the us because she was quite radical in her thinking as well um, they did they just don't think that she would, would have been able to achieve what she did um but we think about these figures and it, that puts a lot of pressure what about the normal disabled people The the people with dyslexia who maybe don't end up being uh, da Vinci's one one of the people that um that gets a lot of always well, definitely dyslexic because he wrote backwards and all this stuff uh just his way of thinking blah 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 what if you're not leonardo da vinci like which most people aren't um, it's it's a difficult issue to sort of hold up and be like oh but Einstein was dyslexic but yeah I'm not Einstein and I'm never going to be Einstein so is that giving me any comfort or is that giving me some pressure um, so it's it, it's it's difficult I mean there's there's several figures in the Victorian period that get um, were she dyslexic um, so um, Elizabeth Fry was one of them who's a massive social reformer. Um, Yates gets it actually W.B. Yates who he's a little bit later the poet Um, there's a a few folks that get that sort of ooh were they weren't they but I think it's it's quite problematic um, to try and diagnose. Similarly I mean there's a lot of theories about um, Emily Bronte um, being autistic or having an eating disorder various things going on there but I think you know that's difficult because are you, are you trying to take away her genius? Because there's this notion about autistic people and savantism. They're being like super, super intelligent. Are you saying that *Wuthering heights and all the amazing things that Emily Bronte and her sisters achieved were just the result of having a neurological difference? Um, Because that's kind of in a way, minimizing it, but kind of in another way feeding into this like super crip idea Um, which is quite dangerous um, I think Um, and also we don't know we 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 can't assume Um, so I think I think it's interesting to have opinions and to think oh maybe Um, but I think going any further than oh maybe
1: actually sitting there and making a list is beyond
2: yeah there's there's a weird I'm just not there's discomfort
1: um
2: that's there it's 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 yeah as i say problematic the absolute academic catch-all um yeah that there's there's more politics involved there than bite seem. um But equally, I'm not going to take it away from someone who is maybe feel like a child is maybe feeling down about struggling with reading and writing and a parent turning around and being like, oh, well, Einstein was just like, like, I'm not going to take that away from, you know, someone that might get comfort in that, because that's a good thing. But um, yeah, it's, uh, as I say, problematic.
1: (laughs) Approach with caution.
0: Yeah. Louise, thank you so much for joining us. That was that really hit me home, you know, obviously with the dyslexia and, and the dyspraxic stuff. it's uh, It's been so interesting having you on. Thank you so much. No worries.
1: Um,
2: I hope I get another style of review. I think I scored less, though, so that's a good thing.
1: Yeah, well, uh, judging by what he wrote, he won't be listening anyway, so you can say what you like about him. Mm, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. No worries. Join us tomorrow for hedge hopping with Matt Bone in the morning. And then in the afternoon, Alina's dreams came true because Rana Mitter sat down to talk all about 20th century China. So don't miss out on that one. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month, and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe.
0: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers.